We've made it to the end. Good job. Uh, this has been our uh, book for the last six months. If, if you're new to the Bible, then uh, Christians are people who believe that God speaks and that God speaks authoritatively through His Word. And if we want to know what He's done and what He's doing, then we go to His Word, the Scriptures. And so we, uh, as a church, our habit most of the time is to just open a book of the Bible and work our way through it from beginning to end. We've been doing that together for six months in the book of 1 Samuel. This morning we come to the tragic uh, conclusion of the story. And as any good conclusion to a story does, 1 Samuel 31 has a way of sort of reaching back all the way to chapter 1 and, and gathering together so many of the themes that are sprinkled throughout the whole book. As we work our way through this short chapter this morning, we'll attempt to draw out these major lessons that the close of the story intends us to capture. The last several chapters are written in such a way that they can be a little confusing because they move back and forth from Saul to David, and then from David to Saul. Last week we looked at David, and this morning we'll be together looking at Saul. If you were to watch this on a movie screen, then there might be a a split screen where you can see that as things are happening with Saul, at the same time things are happening with David. But of course that's a little bit more difficult to discern on paper. The emphasis of recording it this way is to show that these are concurrent events. That as David is on the rise, because he's found himself strengthened in the Lord and is relying on him, Saul is finding the exact opposite. While David found strength in the Lord and fought the Amalekites victoriously, Saul's engaged in a battle with the Philistines that will have a much different outcome. So we have two men on two very different paths, responding to crises in two very different ways, all happening at the same time. Way back months ago in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we heard Hannah pray this, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. There's been this theme recurring throughout the book of 1 Samuel that God opposes the proud, but he lifts up those who are humble. And today, the once mighty Saul will be broken, while the feeble David has found strength in God. Our hope and prayer for you is that this dramatically divergent plight of two men so long ago would help us understand the weight of the choices we make and the importance of relying on God. So if you would, please look with me at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchizedek and the sons of Saul. 
Some events are so utterly horrendous that we need little detail to comprehend what's happened. That's certainly true of 1 Samuel chapter 31. The battle between the Philistines and the Israelites is one of those kind of events. We have literally in two verses summarized the day. As David was out rescuing his family and defeating the Amalekites, Saul was losing his family. And we'll see in a few minutes that he was losing his own life as well. You see, as the Philistines and Israelites fought in the Jezreel Valley, eventually it became clear that Israel was going to lose. And in so doing, the soldiers fled for Mount Gilboa. And we live in a time when war, in many ways, is so dramatically different than this. Today, it's possible for the, the wealthy nations of the world to have soldiers sit in air-conditioned rooms in other countries while drones fire missiles out of any sense of danger at all. But it wasn't that way then. You see, almost certainly, the Israelite soldiers ran from the mountains, ran to the mountains to get away from the Philistines' chariot. Imagine a battle in which you're, you're not firing from a distance, but rather everything happens in hand-to-hand combat. And if all you have is a sword and the other side has horses and chariots, you will quite literally get mowed down. That's probably what was happening here. Moving up the mountains might save their lives, because the chariots couldn't go up the side of Mount Galboa. So Saul and his sons, when they realized what was happening, they headed that way. They'd given up on winning. They're merely trying to avoid unmitigated slaughter. But many of the soldiers didn't make it. In fact, three of Saul's four sons died. Moving up the mountains provided some buffer, if you will, from the chariots, but it wouldn't help with the the archers. So probably these Philistines came roaring in on their chariots, climbed off of them, pulled out their bows, and then began to rain arrows down on Israelites as they scurried up the side of the mountain. Verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. And Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. 
And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Saul was mortally wounded by some of those arrows. So it was clear he's going to die, but what would happen to him first? Very likely in an effort to avoid being captured and tortured and humiliated, Saul killed himself. And his armor bearer did the same. The king, great King Saul, once so full of promise and power, now lay dead on Mount Gilboa. And don't miss this. He's dead by self-slaughter, spiritually and physically. Saul has been his own worst enemy. Saul destroyed himself. Now, if this feels heavy to you, it's only going to get more so. This is a very intense text. But the first major conclusion we need to draw together that the narrator is intending us to see as as sort of combed through the entire story of 1 Samuel is this, disobedience begets disaster. Disobedience begets disaster. The tragic ending to the book of 1 Samuel shouldn't catch any of us by surprise. Now, of course, if you're, you're here for the first time, you've never read the book of 1 Samuel, then you're not aware yet of all the details. But for the rest of us, we've seen this coming. While we didn't know how Saul's life would end, there was no question that his kingship was coming to a catastrophic conclusion because he had been disobedient over and over and over. The last scene in the book In chapter 28, Samuel told Saul that the Lord had turned and become his enemy. He told him that the kingdom would be taken and given to David. He explicitly told him that you will die in a Philistine battle. And verse 18 of chapter 28 gives these chilling words, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. Saul knew. And even earlier than that, in fact, years earlier, in chapter 15, Samuel had told Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Saul knew. Friends, Saul's failure to trust and obey God had devastating consequences. It cost him his life. His willful opposition to God, his ongoing deception, his disobedience, his refusal to submit, his abuse of kingly power, his self-reliance, his habit of living by his own word instead of trusting God's word. All of these things ensured his kingdom would come to an end. This was tragic for Saul, but not only for Saul. 
You see, as the king of the nation of Israel, he was their representative. And so as the king went, so also went the nation. It wasn't only Saul that died that day. As news of Saul's death spread, the Israelites and all the surrounding towns fled too. As the Twitter cast the news, horror went all over the nation. To a much lesser degree, it's like what happened overnight. If you were up late last night paying any attention on any media at all, you saw that a man who had everything the world could ever offer hung himself in his jail cell so he wouldn't face the consequences of his actions. And this morning, as the news of that suicide moves in waves across the nation and around the world, all the people he sexually abused are reaping in some way the consequences of his own suicide. Their king was dead. Many of their sons and fathers and brothers and uncles were also dead. And most of the rest were now refugees running, looking for somewhere to hide. Now, don't misunderstand me. The the point of Saul's failure today, if we say that a different way, the application of this text is not that if you disobey God and you keep disobeying God, then you're going to lose your job Your kids will be killed, and you will die on the mount, one of superstition mountains, by archers. Obviously, that's not the outcome. That can't be what this text means. But what does it mean? Well, certainly on one level, we can talk about the fact that the wages of sin is death. That disobedience before God results in spiritual alienation from Him. That anyone who sins and doesn't run to Jesus for salvation will meet not merely physical disaster, but eternal disaster. And that's true. But I think there's a closer application I think there's a more specific lesson we can draw from this passage. Here it is. The foolish choice of the wrong Savior will cause you to bear both his failure and yours. The foolish choice of the wrong Savior will cause you to bear both his failure and yours. Do you see how that's what happened with Israel? The Israelites wanted a king. Hear these ominous words from chapter 8 as they're crying out for their very first king. There shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our 
battles. That's what they wanted. And that's what they got. You see, Israel had a king. God was their king. But for them, they weren't like everyone else, so that wasn't good enough. They wanted to trade God for a human king they could see and touch and feel and trust. They wanted a king to go fight their battles for them. In a word, they wanted a savior. So God gave them what they asked for. King Saul was the tallest man in the land. He was big and strong and handsome. He appeared to be a good candidate for the office. But all the height and all the stature can't make up for a lack of godly character. Leadership is built on what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. Israel chose a man to save them who couldn't and wouldn't save. Having a king like all the nations meant having a disobedient, prideful, self-reliant king. Israel trusted Saul to do what Saul couldn't and wouldn't do. And there's where the takeaway for us couldn't be more potent. Friend, what are you looking to for peace? Who are you expecting will come and will make things right? When you're afraid or empty or lonely or aware of your own brokenness or anxious or directionless or unsatisfied, where do you turn? I hope you'll let Israel's choice of Saul serve as a warning that anything we look to for security and confidence and peace and trust that isn't God will eventually fail us. The world produces insufficient saviors. You see, if you're single, getting a spouse, as wonderful as that might be, will not fix your soul. Being healed of whatever disease is plaguing you won't serve as a remedy for a lack of relationship with God. A raise won't solve our problems. Finally having a child or getting a different job or earning a degree, moving to a new city, finding a different church, upgrading to a larger house, getting a better batch of coworkers. The world produces insufficient saviors. A bottle for a while may cause you to forget. Success, physical fitness, perfect grades, a best friend, a new car, a different school, all of these things are nothing but little souls promising more than they can possibly give. If you look to the world and the things of the world to resolve what only God can, that foolish choice will end up causing you to bear the weight of that idol. 
in addition to all the stuff you had of your own already. Brothers and sisters, only Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Sinful, pseudo-saviors cannot win. They cannot save. Sinful, pseudo-saviors cannot save. Israel looked to Saul for the kind of peace and security that only God can provide. And all too often, we find ourselves looking elsewhere for hope and stability and peace that are fully and finally offered only through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. My friends, that is the great lesson of this chapter. But there are other important principles here. Take, for example, this fact. Disobedience among the people of God brings dishonor upon God. This is one of the more surprising points pressed forward in this text. Look at with me at verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of the Astra. They fastened his body to the wall of beth Jen. The day after the battle, the Philistines came back to the battlefield to find some treasure. It's a gruesome scene, if you actually imagine it. Dead bodies are strewn everywhere. And mixed within those fallen soldiers are some who haven't yet died. They can't get up. They can't crawl away. There's no modern medicine to help. They lay there and they moan. The Philistines, as they make their way over the fallen army, they finish off the few who are still alive. And then they dig in the pockets, looking for stuff they can have because they've killed other human beings. As those corpses stink and they are infested with flies, other human beings comb for stuff. It was on this hunt for loot that the Philistines realize who they killed. You see, in the chaos of the battle the day before, it wasn't readily obvious. But now they've found the king of Israel dead, his sons dead. And in celebratory savagery, they chop off Saul's head. They take his armor and they put it in one of the temples of their gods. They take his headless body and impale him on the wall of their main city, Beth Shan. And worst of all, verse 9 says, they sent the announcement throughout the land to their idols and to their people that Saul is dead. Now look closely with me at verse 9, would you? There's a little phrase in there. 
to carry the good news. Friends, these messengers were proclaiming nothing less than the gospel of the Philistines. That's what the good news is. It's the heralding of an announcement that changes everything. These messengers were evangelists. They were disciple makers. You see, they went throughout the land of the Philistines declaring something like this. Saul is dead. Yahweh lost. Saul is dead. Ashtaroth won. See, the ancient societies knew what some, very few, but increasingly in America this is true, a very few societies pretend today. The ancients knew there is no genuinely secular society. Every culture has its God or gods. And so when two armies fought, it wasn't merely human beings fighting over land. It was ultimately a question of whose God is bigger and badder. And because Saul fell, that meant the Israelites' God fell. This is why they went proclaiming the gospel of the Philistines. It was the message that the God of the Israelites was defeated by the gods of the Philistines. Now, friends, for all practical purposes, they seem to be telling the truth. Saul was dead. His corpse hung naked, despised, and disgusting. His sons were gone. The cities all around the region, once filled with Israelites, cities where God had been worshipped, are now full of idol-worshipping Philistines. Now, frankly, the Philistine gospel is still heard today. It's heard wherever human beings believe they've triumphed over God. Every mockery of the Bible, every disdain for God's people, every exaltation of false gods and false saviors, every celebration of human autonomy as though we're beyond God, every raising of our word over God's, every book that tells you, look within yourself, in your own heart, build your own self-esteem and self-identity. The Philistine gospel is alive and well. Now, why had this happened? Well, friends, it's very clear. King Saul disobeyed God's word. But what's shocking about that is that God would rather temporarily have his name dishonored than to allow people to go on pretending that they actually know him and follow him. Disobedience among the people of God brings dishonor on God. And God, in fact, temporarily wills it because he will not have people pretending about him. God was not seen and savored and trusted and enjoyed that day in Israel because there was disobedience among their leader. 
There's a sobering reminder there for us because it's no different in the church. Unconfessed sin, especially unconfessed sin among your pastors, will cause hardship among the whole body. I hope one of the things you pray for every day are your pastors, Todd, Tad, Randy, and myself, that we might not fall. It's common today to think that we're all individual, autonomous, disconnected people, that what one person decides doesn't really have any bearing on anyone else that we're free to do whatever we want to do. And our only real sense of collective responsibility is to make sure that everybody's free to do what everybody wants to do. We'd like to think that what one person does or declares to be true has no consequences or effects on anybody else. But friends, that's just not true. No sin committed and no lie believed only affects a single individual. There's always corporate consequences. Saul, we find here, is not the one who will save God's people. But it's not only Saul who experienced the devastating reality of that truth. It's also the nation of Israel. Brothers and sisters, sinful pseudo-saviors cannot save. And to the degree that you try to trust in them, that will affect everyone around you. If we're not looking to God, then we're looking to a pseudo-savior. And in so doing, we will bear the consequences, not only on ourselves, but on our families and on our church. Now, the story ends with a sad conclusion. It ends with an honorable but incredibly sad finale. Look at verse 11. When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, All the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons in the wall from the wall of Bethshan. Which, by the way, this is an old, old story. Somewhere around a thousand years old. I mean, three thousand years old. And in some ways, it can be difficult to, to grasp. It can be easy to think, well, there might be a good moral or a good lesson here. But that's, that's not what Christianity claims. You see, Christianity claims to be real people in real places in actual historical events. And it's possible that if you wanted to, you could get on a plane, you could fly to Tel Aviv, you could rent a car, and you could drive to Beth Sion is still there. It is one of the most excavated cities in the ancient world. You can walk on the streets. You can see the brothels. 
you can look at the columns to the city council. You can go to the temple where these false gods were worshipped. You can see the crumble of the walls where Saul's body was held. These are real events. And these men traveled all night at great risk to themselves to get Saul's headless body. Verse 13, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Now, it's been a long time since we came across this part of the story, but maybe for a few of us, Jabesh Galid recalls something to mind. You see, back at the very beginning of Saul's reign, Saul heard that the people of Jabesh Galid were under fire. He was moved with compassion. And in the first great act of gathering the army of Israel, he did so, and he went there, and he rescued that city. It, the, the future appeared so bright. But Saul didn't stick with God. He tried throughout his reign. He diverged from where he began. He tried to rule in his own strength and for his own glory. And therefore, his kingdom ended in failure. But the people of Jabesh Galid never forgot. And so they took honor. They brought it to this fallen king. Very likely burned his body so his bones couldn't be exhumed and desecrated again. And they gave him a burial. And that's the end. The making of a king for the people of God turned out to be a failed project. Saul wouldn't be that king. And with those words, the book comes to a crashing conclusion. But thankfully, the Bible doesn't end there. You see, as the story unfolds through the rest of the pages of the Bible and through the annals of time, we come to see that ultimately only a perfect God can save God's people. And so ultimately, a different king came. Because there is a king who can bear the weight of the office of king. There, there is a king who always sticks with God's word. There is a king who never abuses God's office and God's power. There is a king who gives of himself. There is a king who's not interested in self-protection. His name, of course, is King Jesus. Jesus, too, died on a mountain. But Jesus died not by his own sword, but with his own love pouring out for his people. Brothers and sisters, may we turn from pseudo-saviors back to this God, this God who gave of his own Son, that all who trust in him 
would know this king forever. If you've never turned from self-rule and found yourself at the grace and mercy of God, today's the day. You can do so right where you are. And may all of us who know him already turn from our pseudo-saviors and we turn from our souls and rest in the one true God. Let's pray.